Well, we've had two amazing episodes in this trilogy on resilience. The first one being an interview with uh, Sir Graham Lamb, who is the three-star general of the British forces and also director of the SAS. And he was talking very much on the topic of resilience from a cultural and organizational perspective. This was then followed by, in the second episode, Baz Gray, who was again in the forces. This time he was a sergeant major in the Royal Marines. And his account of resilience was very much driven from a personal perspective of how do you actually act or react in times of huge adversity. And then this third episode on resiliency is is led by Dr. Carol Pemberton. She has an extremely strong background in coaching and she specialized in resilience as the theme of her doctoral research project. What Carol brings to the episodes on resiliency is can resiliency be coached? Um, And if so, what are the core components that are required in order to help someone become more resilient? So I do hope you enjoy this next episode to complete the trilogy. Let's get stuck into it. Okay, so Carol, first of all, I'd just like to say huge thanks for your joining us on the Sales Transformation podcast series. Um, As you know, we're doing a trilogy on the topic of resilience. Um, We're looking at resilience as far as how to build resilience into organizational effectiveness. Uh, We have Sir Graham Lamb joining us, ex-British Army and head of the SAS. And then we have an Antarctica explorer and and an ex-Royal Marine as well, talking about personal resilience. And then we have yourself here on the podcast series talking about resilience and coaching for resilience in particular, which I know is your speciality. But before we get started, Carol, I'd love if you could just to give us a quick potted history of who you are and how you came to be focused on this particular topic. Right. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Um, Well, as you've said, I'm I'm Carol Pemberton. I've been working as as an executive coach for 20 years. And prior to that, I worked in business schools, consultancy, did research and wrote quite a lot about topics around management and careers, particularly careers, and also around how can managers coach people they work with. So coaching has been a big, big part of my life for most of my working life. Um, But resilience actually came into view through one particular client. And he was somebody who I'd known for a number of years. He was a very bright young man who'd come from a council estate in the Northeast and had gone to Oxbridge and had come out of that and was always on the fast track. And I'd worked with him through a number of career moves And all of them had the same pattern, that he would take something on that was a stretch. He would have a tough first few months and then he would triumph. That was the story. And then he moved into a a role in in a different part of the organization. And when I met with him, over time, I began to notice there were some changes. Um, I noticed that whenever he talked about his team, it was with anger about how they were letting himself down. And yet I knew he was someone who really loved working with teams. Uh, When he spoke about his boss, it was all in terms of what they weren't doing and how they were failing him. When I looked at him, he looked exhausted. 
and he was telling me that he could only sleep if he went through really rigorous extreme exercise regimes and you know with each session i felt as though i was sort of like patching him together and then he went off and then he came back and there'd be another crisis and eventually um he became ill and he was signed off with stress and at that point i had a feeling of i failed him like how didn't i see this coming why was i just dealing with little symptoms and not standing back and getting a bigger picture um but luckily when he came back to work he said to me i never want this to happen again and can you help me can you help ensure that i don't that i learn how to do things differently and he started using the word resilience. And so I became both very committed to helping him, but also really curious about well, what is this thing that we call resilience, which has now become a word that's everywhere, you know, but it, it wasn't so much in those times. And so that's what I did. I started reading, trying to find out as much as I could. And then eventually it led me to doing my doctoral research. But if it hadn't been for that one client, perhaps it would never have developed <laughs> in that way. Well, it's amazing. It's an amazing story, actually. And it shows the uh, trust uh, you must have built up, you know, with that particular individual. Um, and I think it takes quite a lot of courage to be able to take quite a lot of courage to say, well, perhaps I had failed him, as you said earlier, and, and, and then to do something about it, which you did. Can I just come on to the reason why you decided to do a doctorate on this? I mean, what, you could have just read books, you could have studied it, but what made you want to do a doctorate on the topic? Well, I know, I know what you need in order to do a doctorate because many years ago I'd started a doctorate and pulled out, and I pulled out because I didn't feel passion about it. I could do it, I could run the statistics, I could build a hypothesis, but I didn't feel passionate. And when I started thinking about this, and when I started looking into it, I sort of think, gosh, this really connects with me. This, re this really feels important. And when I looked at all the research that was being done around resilience, it was largely based on what happened to people in really extreme circumstances, and particularly what happens to children. So there'd been a, a really groundbreaking study that was done maybe over started over 50 years ago where they'd followed the lives of children living in deprivation for over 30 years to try and discover what makes some of them more resourceful than others and there were been lots of other studies looking at people maybe who are who are living with aids or uh, suffering uh, you know refugees and there were lots of studies of people who are living in what we would see as really heightened life situations but there was nothing that at that time that seemed to look at but what happens to people in organizations when their resilience gets stretched and they were the people i was working with so i was curious as is it the same or are there some differences for adults um and the other part of it was and you'll know this because you've done uh, a doctorate as well is there was a way of doing a doctorate which allowed you to bring your professional practice into the doctoral study and so it seemed to me that as a coach if i could do a doctoral study which allowed me to focus on how could i as a coach help senior leaders to regain resilience um, that could have a really practical outcome it could one it would help me but also i could use it to share that with others there's a couple of things i could i'd love to come back to if i could carol um 
one was a word that you used which was around the word resourceful um because you were talking about the children and so, what, what would make some children more resourceful than others and i don't know if you meant to use that word or whether you meant to use the word resilient um so it, it i guess it's the connection between being resourceful and being resilient i guess there's a close connection well, I think, I think the word resourceful actually is right for those children. This, the study, I'll say a little bit about it, was that they followed nearly 700 children for 30 odd years, as I've said. And then they discovered that one third of them were living lives which would be seen as healthy, you know, purposeful lives. Um, and they came from backgrounds which were quite chaotic and with multiple deprivations. And what they discovered, which I think does point to their resourcefulness, is one these children found something that had meaning for them that they looked at their lives and made a decision that they wanted their lives to be different and found ways of doing that and the other thing that they did was they found people who could support them and i think that's a very resourceful response they, they could look at their family and think actually there's not much support available here but you know my teacher my football coach you know, my granny, somebody in the church, they, they found somebody who would give them what perhaps wasn't available to them in their own environment. And I think that's resourceful. And of course, putting the two together supported their resilience because when, when you know why something matters to you and when you've got support, then you become really determined. It gives you, it gives you that sense of, I'm going to stick with this. You know, some of them would perhaps want to be teachers or doctors or engineers. So that's going to take an awful lot of effort, you know, and, and the shifting away from a lot of, probably shifting away from their family. Now, you're only going to do that if you've got a real sense of, I'm determined. And I think those two things together actually fuel determination. That's really, really interesting. So thank you. It's interesting that you use the word purpose uh, i wonder if you could explain a bit more about what that word means to you yes certainly well i think purpose is almost like a compass point for us so that you know if you look across a life any life you'll find that there are repeated patterns uh, which have driven how we've acted how we've reacted in a situation and if you analyze those and you were uh, to say, well, let's synthesize all of that down. You know, if we look at the themes how, and we synthesize it down, what's it saying to us about your purpose? So, you know, you, when you synthesize, it might be, my purpose is to ensure that all children can eat so that no one has a childhood like I had. You know, if we think about Marcus Rashford, I suspect his purpose isn't about being a footballer, right? He's got a bigger purpose. You know to support children like me so they have the opportunities that i've had i mean i'm speaking for marcus but you know it's like when you look at the actions and behaviors that we have you can often see that there's something that's driving it that's constant it doesn't matter what job you're doing or where you are in the world you will still bring that approach so when i'm working with clients and, and i get them to reflect on experiences they've had and we look for themes then we say okay if we were going to put this as a purpose and it would have a strap line to do something so that right now if it's 
the theme of my work has always been to offer exceptional service so that my clients achieve more than they think is possible if that was if that was a purpose well that's going to be constant right it won't matter what the context of that will never change your your purpose you will just bring it to different contexts you'll bring it to the covid world you'll bring it to the post-covid world you'll bring it to the good times you'll bring it to the bad times so purpose is sort of an anchor that says trust that trust that this is true about you and then the opportunities will link to that you'll find you'll find the right opportunities when you've got that anchored sense of purpose does that answer your question <laughs> it's brilliant brilliant answer yes absolutely um if i could sort of talk a little bit about you know the the context of the world in which we operate in which is sales and, and sales leadership and we host these uh, you know, quite prestigious events once a year at the london stock exchange and we bring people together and we talk about different topics and one of the topics we had at the last event we ran was about mental health in sales and i think that sales and i, I don't know if you've got a point of view about this but sales as a profession kind of attracts the alpha male type behaviors you know it's it's not cool for people to be seen to be suffering from anxiety or have mental health issues in in some way but what struck me at this particular event is we've got a number of quite senior sales leaders talking about mental health and about their mental health and about the fact that they had a bit like the individual that you were the coach to they had had some form of uh, mental breakdown and and what was very interesting is to hear them talk about how they used th that anxiety to bring out their best in the world of sales. And in fact, some attributed their success to the fact mm -hmm. that they did have that mental breakdown. It was a factor that had stayed with them. So I don't know if you've got anything you'd like to say about that particular story. That's interesting, isn't it? Because anxiety can be a fuel to performance so i can see how that would work but are they saying that when their anxiety led to a breakdown does it cause a reassessment or i mean what was what was the impact of the breakdown for them well it 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 was a reassessment in this particular case the individual couldn't get on an airplane Mm. and had to see a doctor when they arrived at a certain country and he was he had this sort of huge panic attack and he realized that actually he needed help and when he came back to the UK he he received some counseling and they started to sort of unravel so I'm sure that there was you know some reflection and I'm sure that he also sort of went through a process of trying to figure things out and he he knows that he is prone to being anxious mm. um but he's certainly learned to live with it and he uses it and talks about it now in a in a very positive way so i don't not sure if i've answered your question fully but it yeah. it was just interesting how people you know perhaps this again it's about being resourceful do start to fit you know i've got a choice to make here perhaps you know if they're lucky enough to be able to think that way um, i've got a choice to make how am i going to deal with it i can either let it win over me or else i could learn to live with it 
because I I'm yeah. not sure if it ever goes away. I mean, I I just don't know. Well, you know, it could be that, that I mean, there is some evidence that some there's some genetics in this. So you know that somebody can be triggered by their brain to be perhaps more anxious in a situation than another person could be. Um, and it may well have, well have fueled their sort of performance. But I think often when people have something dramatic happen, like your, like your sales colleague, is what it does is it makes them much more aware of their processes so that they, they can start to notice, oh, I'm going into that stage again, and I now have some choices. Whereas before that, I imagine he was just driven by the anxiety and then it led him to an outcome which wasn't healthy. But I think that, that ability to sort of start noticing yourself and then think, what, what is the choice I've got in this moment is a really important one in terms of staying, you know, staying resourced. Um, not that we can get rid of anxiety. I mean, some people are just naturally more anxious, but people can learn ways of, of managing it. And, you know, I'm also mindful of um, Brenny Brown, who some of your listeners may know, and her work on vulnerability. And she talks about how it's actually in the moment of becoming vulnerable and recognizing your vulnerability that you become resilient. So when you're in the alpha, I am tough, nothing, nothing affects me, I can power through, it's like you're armored. Um, and that can get you through uh, but it also keeps you separate, keeps you separate from your feelings and it can keep you separate from other people. And she she's done a lot of research on this to show that actually it's at those times when people face their vulnerability that they actually start to access their resilience, mm. you know, by facing into it rather than how do I keep away from it? You know, how do I keep away from those feelings that actually we do become much stronger? That's uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. It would be interesting to hear your point of view about how you define the word resilience. I'm sure that you must have explored what, you know, what does it mean? Um, yes. Well, I looked at, there are hundreds of definitions, you know, every academic has a different definition. Um, but eventually, and I looked at them, I thought there's, there seems to be a school of thought that thinks it's about bounce back. You know, it's about you get knocked down and you pick yourself up. Um, and you get shaken, but eventually you'll, you'll steady yourself. Um, and there's a sort of Japanese saying that says, knock down seven times, stand up eight. So there's that school of thought and there are books written around that. Um, but actually I, became much more interested in, in when you look at the sort of natural world and, and you look at how plants, particularly how plants evolve, you know, we've all got gardens where you've got, um, you know, the dandelion will find its way through anything. It will get through the concrete, it will get through the tarmac, you know, it will find a way through. And it does that because it adapts, right? It, it sees what the conditions are and it finds a way of adapting to them. And so I came to think of resilience as being, um, I use the image of a slinky when I'm working with, with people, which is to say, you know, everybody remembers the slinky from their childhood. You know, you put it on the steps and it put it on the next step and then by momentum it went down the rest of the stairs. And what that means is that, you know, there are times that it's the stretch in the slinky that causes the momentum. That's what the energy comes from that moves it forward. 
So for me, it's about saying, okay, at times as humans, we get stretched. And when we do, we don't just bounce back to how we were, we're, we're changed by it. But actually what we can do is we can use the learning from that stretch, you know, so that it moves us forward. So it's when our lives are disrupted, how do we take something from that so that we become more able to deal with whatever the next stretch is going to be, you know, because it's largely a learnt behavior, resilience. I mean, there are some other factors and we might want to talk about those, but largely it's learnt from having dealt with, with stuff, you know, the stuff that we don't like, you know, the ending of the relationship, the loss of a job, the death of a parent, you know, the, the ending of a friendship, illness. I mean, the things which we don't want, perversely, are the things which actually allow us to become more resilient um, over time. So that actually with age, we tend to be more resilient. Again, that's, that's very interesting. I wonder if I could go back to your doctorate. Um, mm. And, you know, what was the journey that you took? And what were the findings uh, that you sort of came out with as a consequence of your, your study? Right. Well, I was interested in how do leaders recover from setback, right? Because that didn't seem to be something that had been looked at. And so I was fortunate enough to find some leaders who were willing to say, yes, my resilience is being impacted at the moment by whatever was going on for them. And so I actually worked with them as a coach. But what I was, what I was looking at all the time was, what's the narrative that they're carrying with them? Because one of the things I notice with clients is we all have identities that we hold about ourselves. And you know, people who are in senior roles have strong identities about, you know, I'm capable, I'm strong, um, you know, I'm a winner, you know, whatever that identity is. And when something happens, that really impacts on us, we tend to go into another identity. So the person who sees themselves as strong can suddenly take on an identity of I'm weak, or I'm a winner, I'm a failure, or I'm confident, I'm worthless, right? So I was interested in the, what's the narrative that they're arriving with about themselves as a result of this event? And then how can, how can the people build a new narrative a different narrative that's going to take them forward. So I was very interested in what are the stories that we create in our heads, which then shape what we think is possible for us or how the world will treat us. And when we have difficult times, we tend to build certain sorts of narratives. We go, suddenly we lose access to an identity which normally is there and we take on almost a shadow version of it. And so how how could I help people to build a different sort of narrative? And what's the process of doing that? How does it happen? <laughs> so that eventually you can be facing the same issue. Maybe the outcome hasn't changed in terms of, you know, you're still never going to get that promotion that you thought you were going to have, or, you know, you're still never going to get the top grid in the box, nine grid box. But have you now got a different version of yourself that allows you to be able to be with that more comfortably. Um, so that was what I was interested in. What are the narratives we carry? How does that change? And what's the process of helping somebody to change that narrative? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I was very interested in something you said, which was it could be a learnt, you know, it's mm. something that could be learnt as well. So I assume from that, that from your research, you were able to work with some of the coaches to actually help them perhaps recreate or rebuild the narrative mm. for them to to become more resilient. Is, is that what happened? That's what happened, yes. So um, I worked with them over a period of time and I was you know, obviously recording the sessions and analysing the sessions, but also analysing myself, saying, what was I doing? Why did I do that? Um, but what I was particularly interested in is what was the process by which the narrative changed? And, and actually what I came to see is it wasn't in any way linear. It wasn't as though people came to session two with all the learning from session one and then built on it. It wasn't like that. It was, I called it the narrative wave, which is, you know, we get insights, we get new thoughts about ourselves, but we might have a bad week at work and actually we lose that. We go back. It's like the backwash. Mm. Yeah. Or we may have a new thought that feels really strong about, yes, I am capable. Yeah. There's no reason why I shouldn't get that next promotion. And then there's another thought that comes in from the side that says, yeah, but you know, you're not the sort of person they want anymore. You're too old. Uh, you know, the world's changed. Um, and so there's always these, as much as people were moving forward, there would always be things which were knocking them back. But over time, the sort of, the blockers and the backwash seemed to get less. So eventually, there was enough of a new narrative that it could sustain them. And that was that what, what I was seeing when I analysed the conversations. It wasn't a sort of, there was no aha moment where people say, oh, you know, of course I can deal with the fact that, um, you know, I've lost my job. Or of course I can see that I'm no longer seen as talent. It wasn't like that. But over time, those waves started to become smoother. And eventually it was that they had enough of a new story that even when the old story kicked in they could say oh yeah i've got there's a different way in which i can think about that i love this idea of narratives and also being non-sequential um certain coaching models whether it's the grow model or others you know they have a you know there's a sort of sequence that you mm. actually go through so do, do you have a point of view about coaching for resilience and coaching you know, perhaps using some of the, I, d I don't want to say more traditional models, but perhaps more well-known models? In terms of things like grow, well, the challenge is at the beginning, people's goals are usually to have what they've always had. So if, if I've, you know, if I've had a terrible appraisal, say, and, and I've been completely thrown by it because I saw myself as, you know, about to go on to some high potential scheme, then my immediate goal is I want to get on that high potential scheme, right? How can I get there as quickly as possible? Now, actually, that might not be, that might not be the goal that actually really needs to be addressed. So I think there are points in which those, those models can come in, but it's generally later in the process, I think. I think in the first part, it's about just being with. Um, one of the things I'm involved with at the moment through because of covid is doing some work with frontline nhs workers and what we realized in the first few months was you couldn't work with them in a conventional way they might only have 15 or 20 minutes 
Um, you're not going to get the sort of luxuries that we get when we're in organizations. And we came to realize that they came because actually they did need to be more resilient. They were being really impacted by what they were having to do with in ICU units. But what they really needed was just a place to pause. They just need a place just to settle. And actually, I think the starting point is just to let people bring whatever is there for them in that moment. And in allowing that, then to see what seems to be most important in this for you and, and what's doable, right? That's also, but what's most important? Now, out of that, it may be that there comes a point where you then are saying, well, what might be a goal for looking after yourself better between shifts? Like that could be a goal. Or sometimes just the process of being with and being listened to allowed them to do the work for themselves. Mm -hmm. They self-corrected. And so there's nothing wrong with any of the models that we're taught, but it's about judging at what point that's going to be helpful. And at what point it's trying to drive something which is more about your need than perhaps the other person's need. Mm. So I think starting with pause is probably a good place for, for any coaching. It's uh, interesting. And you sort of talked about COVID. And of course, I would have thought that the topic, well, the topic of resilience is top of a lot of people's agendas right now. And I remember someone was talking to me about uh, how to train their sales force during the COVID period and what should they prepare their salespeople to do and, and not really, you know, the salespeople not really understanding what sort of issues might be going through the senior leaders' heads right now with COVID. Um, and I decided that I would describe how I felt. You know, I just threw it down on paper and it, there were a number of different phases, which I'll, I'll just briefly explain. And then I'll come back to this idea of pause, which was the first one was a question of survival. You know, you have this juggernaut coming at you, you know, businesses stopping programs, customers deciding to put things on hold because they didn't know what to do. And so you need to, to first of all, decide, could you survive? You know, do we have the cash at the bank to be able to yeah. uh, to keep the business going and then you you sort of stabilize costs and you get some sense of what and for how long you can survive for and then you sort of come into preserve phase you know if we had to let go of things people customers suppliers who do we want to keep who do we need to let go you know so you go through that sort of preservation phase uh, which helps you stabilize the business and perhaps you know, you realize what are the core strengths of what you have at that point and what you need to take you through the next phase. And then you go through a sort of a, an agile phase, which is we know we've got to change. We know we've got to transform. But, do you know, I have no idea what we need to transform to. Uh, we know the world is going to be a different place, you know, after COVID. Uh, but what will that place look like and what will our role be in that place? And then you start to play with ideas and for that you often need people and you need partners and you need suppliers to work with you on coming up with perhaps innovative thoughts and then hopefully as a consequence of that you start to shape in a positive way uh, sort of actions and strategies which are less about how do we act in, in this time but how you know how can we react and move forward and, and then emerge stronger from it. And, and those words, for you know, spelt space, you know, it, it, it spelt space. And 
we saw some people actually rushing around trying to come up with actions very quickly. We saw some of our competitors do the same. I know that I felt at the time I just needed time to think, mm. uh, time to reflect. I wasn't quite ready to make any decisions. <laughs> but then I was chastising myself, perhaps, of not being decisive at this point, you know, where the tsunami is hit. But there you are, looking down at what's going on, trying to figure things out. But I think uh, what you said earlier, certainly I've connected with, you know, myself, you know, that space is terribly important. This time to reflect so um just connecting my personal experience with what you were saying well that's really interesting just listening to the stages you went through because you know there's a whole process of adjustment that we have when we have a shock to us and one is often that people want to deny that it's real and actually what i saw you doing by slowing down was actually you were facing into the reality because that's an important part of being resourceful actually is actually just facing into the reality of it and then at some point because of that and then you allowed yourself some space you actually then start to become creative again and that's a really important part of this but also you've got other people involved and you know there's so much evidence that we are so much stronger when we when we're able to reach out and get partners you know we can share the reality with them and say we're in this together but also we then get more agile, whereas I think if somebody is denying the reality of what's going on, because they think they've got to, because they're the leader, perhaps, you know, I've got to make sure everything looks okay for people, but actually that's not the truth. That doesn't actually help them. It's about the sort of facing into it. And somehow in the facing in, we become actually much more resourced to deal with the reality. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I'm really interested in, in, in how you approached it, because that's, that seems like a really helpful model to teach to other people. Yeah, it, it, it sort of, it was quite helpful for me. I've been quite surprised at how helpful it's been for others that I've shared it with, because yeah. they said, you know, this is quite interesting because we can look at our accounts now and decide where are our customers on that space curve and therefore how do I need to help them yeah. through it, you know. And your strategies and approaches would differ if they were in survival stage to agile stage, you know. And, and therefore, it's, it's just being sort of slightly emotionally intelligent about where your customers are. But I think that one of the things that COVID's done that perhaps is, in a way, helping surface things that you wouldn't normally talk about is the fact that it is affecting everybody. Mm. It's not like just one person, but countries are affected the world is affected so in a kind of it's okay you know you talk about vulnerability earlier on you know it's okay to be vulnerable because if there's a point in time when anyone can be okay i'm not sure i got all the answers it's now because politicians don't have answers the you know we can see it around us so perhaps this this word could be more accepted in the lexicon of leadership sort of moving forward yeah well one would hope so because I mean this has been an event which hit everybody at the same time and you know you'll know from your work with leaders and certainly I've seen it in mine is that very often they struggle to understand why their staff are reacting in the way they are perhaps to a restructuring or you know some big change because 
they've known about it for maybe six months or a year. They've worked it through. So by the time it goes public, they're completely at ease and they're just focused on where's this going to take us. Whereas the people who, for whom they're first being exposed to it are in shock or denial or fear. Or, but there's something about this experience that hit everybody. There's nobody who's immune from it which has made it much more legitimate to be able to talk about, I don't know, we're gonna to have to figure this through together, which isn't normally there. Um, and I mean, I was always struck, and this is a couple of years ago when I was, uh, I was doing some interviews with um, some senior leaders in a bank. And uh, one of the leaders said to me, you know, I'd taken on a new job in a new part of the country at a time when I was going through a divorce and my father was going into care because of dementia. said, And I was expected to show up every day as the strong, confident leader. And he said, what I noticed was it was turning me into a person that I didn't recognize because I felt I had to armor myself so strongly just to get through a day that I didn't want, I didn't want relationship with anyone. I just wanted to be able to like focus on the task, hand it out, you know, I had to protect myself. And he said, eventually I realized, I looked at myself and thought, who am I? Right? This is not the person I want to be. And he said, I just decided to talk about it with my staff and to say, look, this is what you need to know. And this might explain why sometimes I appear in this way. And he said, it was the healthiest thing I'd ever done because when I did it, what I found was, first of all, people started saying, how can I make it easier for you? But also I created a climate where everybody could do the same. And he said the sort of environment in the whole team shifted because of my being willing to say, look, you know, I'm not an automaton. I'm a human being with all the things that happen to us in life as well as work. Um, and he said that was one of the best things he did as a leader was actually to be open with people so that you could create a climate which was about supporting everybody to be resilient. Mm. Carol, can I come back to your doctorate? Because I know that part of that journey is, you know, you're obviously interviewing and you're interested in the narrative. Did you come up with any sort of themes that seemed to sort of led you to what could help build resilience? Were there any yeah. themes that emerged from that that you'd like to share? Well, I think there are lots, and, and it's not just me who's found this. I think I think lots of other people have found similar things, but and some of them we've touched on actually. I think the first one is knowing what's important to you. Is you know knowing why this is worth doing is is really important, and it's a challenge because sometimes people are not really sure why they're doing what they, they're doing it because it's what's expected or because you know it gives them the lifestyle they want or or it's survival but being really clear to yourself is what's my purpose right what is it that gives my life meaning i think is incredibly important you know it was true for the kids in that deprived community in hawaii it's true for adults so i think being able to ask yourself what is it that gives my work meaning? And am I getting this from what I'm doing? And I think this, this actually, this time I see in my work, people are asking, asking themselves that question. I mean, there is a break in this, which allows people to say, 
is this what I want to be doing? Does this express me in the ways I want to be expressed? So I think that's a one really important one. And particularly if you're going through, you know, if you're a leader and you're going through something at the moment where you're having to pull together a team, to be clear about what's, what's my purpose as the leader of this team right now, right? What's that going to ask of me? And if you really attach to it, it's going to, it's going to help you. Um, I think other things which, which very clearly help is actually having, having a degree of realistic optimism, <laughs> being able to still see what's, what's working and what's okay, because it's very easy for us, you know, to catastrophize. You know, we look into 2021 and we say, oh, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be even worse now that all the furlough money's gone and we're out of Brexit. And it's, you know, so it's very easy to get caught by a narrative which is about catastrophe. And in terms of supporting ourselves, it's really important to look for what are the things which actually are okay, they're working, I can be grateful for this. You know, which mightn't be sales figures, but it might be actually look, look at the team we've now got. Look at how we're getting ourselves ready. Look at how we're having much more honest conversations about things now. I mean, you know, so where are, where are the points of optimism? Not a lot of blind optimism of where we'll crush every target next year, but, but actually what can I realistically be optimistic about? And we know that that's really important for supporting people. Another one is around being willing to be flexible. It's one of our instincts when we're under pressure is actually to become much more rigid, um, to become more fixed on this is how things have to be done or this is how I, I need to be. Um, I mean, become very attached to particular routines about how we do things. And we're more resilient when we're when we can flex just like the dandelion going through the concrete right how do we need to flex um and we did it we did it in the early stages of covid when we had that rapid shift towards home working but of course that's now become our new normal the flex might be going back into a much more blended way of working that might be the flex for us so what needs to flex um and just think about where in your life are you more or less flexible you know um because resilience demands that we be flexible you know if, if we take a dramatic example you know when i work with people who, who've lost somebody close to them because i do some bereavement work they have to flex around how their life can be in the future right they have to find different ways of making it okay so flexibility is really important support and we've talked a little bit about that uh, we are much more resilient when we are supported and we're willing to reach out in the same way as that the guy in the bank did. When we have the courage to say, actually, I need some support. We're often we're very good at offering support. Sometimes we're not, sometimes we don't notice. So it goes two ways. But I think that willingness to say, actually, this is what I need you to know. And, and I do need some support right now. I'm having a bad day. You know, or, you know, the fact that I just lost that, that customer is making me feel really at risk or fearful, you know. Um, I think the other thing we said that's been discovered is that we need supporters who also give us a bit of a challenge. So whilst we want arms around us, 
huggy supporters who say you're great you know it's it's unfair they shouldn't be doing this to you this shouldn't have happened we also need supporters who are willing to say okay so what are you going to do about it right okay what haven't you done okay well what else how else could you think about that or what might your part have been in this right so we, we've got to know they're on our side you know, it's coming from a place of goodwill but we need that sort of loving boot supporter as well um, and then we need disruption right we need we need to have things in our lives which have got completely no connection with anything to do with the things that earn us money right we need we need things which remind us that we are more than the salesperson or more than the manager or more than the doctor right? it doesn't matter we all need things and things which give us enjoyment you know so for me singing badly in a choir every week is joyous right <laughs> um, uh, because it doesn't matter what the week's held for that time i'm just enjoying that part of me or it could be going for a run or it could be playing an instrument or it could be baking a cake or it doesn't matter it just needs to be some things which take you away from whatever might be filling up a lot of your brain and just reset you and says actually you can still get pleasure you know you can bake a terrific cake wow <laughs> you know um, and there are some other things, obviously we, we, a lot is spoken at the moment around well-being things and, and, and they're important. They're important because they, all of those things help our brain to function more effectively. But I'll stop there, that's probably enough. Mm. That, that's, a, that's a pretty long list and there were some words that you used there which were interesting, you know, the, the word disruptive. Uh, I also love the um, metaphor of the dandelion actually, it's quite a powerful image of the dandelion appearing through the concrete slabs as well. So can I just ask you one final question, which is the difference between coaching for resilience and coaching. Um, I suppose I might have two questions actually, but why didn't I ask that question first? And then I'll ask you the second question afterwards. Okay. Well, I don't think, I don't think there is a special thing that's called coaching for resilience. I think all coaching, is about understanding what in that, that coach here or that other person needs attention. So it might be confidence, okay? They're less resilient because they've lost confidence or self-belief or they're less resilient because they've become really fixed in their thinking. And it's, it's about finding what's the bit that needs attention. You know, if we think about resilience, it's like a, a jigsaw puzzle. The outcome is your resilience. But the jigsaw pieces are all the things we've been talking about, you know, like optimism, like purpose, like support, mm. like creativity, all of those things. And it's just about listening to the person and understanding what's the bit that's fallen out for you so that it needs attention. And then focusing on helping the client to either build that if it's something that's never been there or to help them to be able to put it back. So I don't think there's a separate strand that's called resilience coaching i think it's just about having a greater awareness of resilience and resilience loss so that you can focus your attention on what in that client needs support and also what in that client is still there right it's very easy for us to focus on the deficit but what's this person got regardless of the fact that it's really difficult and business is bad what they still got that never leaves them 
that's going to be really useful to leverage at this time. So I don't see it as being separate. Okay. Then the second question was going to be around when, you know, obviously you've built up a very strong reputation around this particular area. Do people come to you saying, I need coaching on resilience? Or do people come to you because they perhaps need some sort of coaching support? I think it varies. I think the words out there so much that it's like an okay word to say now, whereas I think 10 years ago, nobody would have picked up the phone and said, I need resilience coach. So people come and they will use that word, but they will mean very different things. They might mean, I just need to be really strong, right? Mm. Or they may mean, you know, I'm not taking care of myself. Um, I think organizations are legitimizing. So, you know, I, I do quite a lot of work with government departments. There's a lot of emphasis on it at the moment. So it's quite legitimate to say, I need some help with my resilience, which wouldn't have been true a few years ago. So some people come using the word, but they mean very different things. You might just mean I need to manage my time better, right? And then I'd be less stressed. Right? So it can, uh, or people come saying, I need to manage my time better. And actually, once you start talking to them, you realize that the reason they're not managing their time is because there's other stuff going on like they're not really connected to their work anymore so they're not doing what they know they should do or so it's it's a mix and and as with any coaching it's just about listening to the person and trying to get a sense of what's really going on here and then deciding what your strategy is going to be with them that's great well carol i think that takes us to the end of this uh, podcast session Okay, so there we have it. The third episode in the Resiliency Trilogy. I do hope you've enjoyed this session with Dr. Carol Pemberton. There's an awful lot to uh, consume content-wise from the Resilience Trilogy. And so my next episode is going to be pulling the key themes as I've heard them together. Um, And I shall also be adding one or two observations on the topic of resiliency uh, that's come about from my own experience um, of working not just with inside uh, my own company, but also with working with some of the organizations that we have as clients around the world. Um, As always, if you've enjoyed this uh, podcast episode, please give it a review. And if you could pass it on to someone else on LinkedIn, that would be great. Um, And we certainly look forward to seeing you Uh, on another podcast episode in the near future. Bye for now.